The following message was given by Rayshawn Graves on Sunday, March 4th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Bibles, you can turn to Ezra chapter 5. Ezra chapter 5, that's where we're going to be at today. We're going to be covering Ezra chapter 5 through chapter 6. It's a running joke on some friends of mine. You see all, I guess online, all these references to their pastors making uh, Black Panther references in their sermons. I promise you I won't do that. <laughs> Black Panther is a movie, by the way, so just I need to say that, clarify that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to do that today. So um, if you're in Ezra chapter 5, I'm going to take a brief moment to pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and, and, and get started. Uh, Father, we thank you for uh, this time. Thank you for gathering your people. Lord, we ask that you would be, uh, be with us here, um, that you would speak, that your words would go forth and not my own, that your thoughts would go forth and not my own, that we would see your sovereignty. We see your, your absolute control over everything. Uh, and that we would trust in that. We would trust in you, Lord. Uh, we ask that Jesus would be made much of, um, the good news of the gospel, and his, his perfect life lived in our place, and his sacrificial death for our sin. Help us to, to see that in Ezra 5 and 6. Uh, so we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the question, why bother? It's what Rick Alexander, uh, an unemployed carpenter in Florida, uh, Jeff Dutton, a PhD and former neuroscientist, and uh, Jenny Salinas, a single mom and former marketing manager, will all tell you about how they're dealing with unemployment. Uh, each of them highly qualified and, and, and experienced in their field. Uh, they've all been unable to find work in this economy. Uh, they're unemployed, but this is a different kind of unemployment. It's a kind that doesn't really show up in the national unemployment rate. They're called discouraged workers. And whether it's due to discrimination or shortage of jobs in their field, lack of skills, disability, or uh, discouraged workers are often people who have given up altogether on looking for employment for one reason or another. Fervently filling out hundreds of job applications turns into not even looking for jobs. The motivation of providing for one's family, it, it quickly turns into shame for not being self-reliant. Days without a job turns into weeks, weeks turn into months, months turn into years. Sometimes identity's lost. Sometimes contentment is found in doing something else. But most of the time, the discouragement, it just debilitates. Well, God's people in Ezra chapter five, they've become the type of discouraged workers. Inability to work on the unfinished temple is turned into unwillingness to work. Obedience to God's purposes is taken a back seat. And last week we saw that the work of rebuilding the temple, it was brought to an immediate halt when King Artaxerxes wrote a letter that painted the entire project as a threat to empires everywhere, which was a major setback for God's people. And so now for nearly 20 years, the temple construction that once evoked joy from God's people, once viewed as a sign of restoration, it now triggers despair and sadness during this lengthy period of inactivity. It's like every time you walk by this unfinished temple, this unfinished project with its red and yellow tape everywhere, it just evokes all kinds of questions and emotions. For God's people, it's probably they were feeling feelings of uncertainty. Wondering, is this ever going to be finished? 
It's been 16 years. How much longer is it going to be before this temple is done? Maybe they experience feelings of doubt, wondering, is God even for us anymore? Because if he was for us, wouldn't the temple be finished already? Is God even with us? Maybe they experience feelings of shame and regret, thinking that we must have really done something to offend God this time. This is punishment. He's done with us. After releasing us from captivity for 70 years and and, and bringing us back to Jerusalem, now the temple's at a halt. Where is God? Maybe they were saying to themselves, if our ancestors had just never messed up, if we or them had just never found ourselves underneath God's wrath, we wouldn't even be in this predicament. As a people, Israel used to be on top of the world. No regulations, no restrictions when it came to, to building their glorious first temple that Solomon built. But now all these decrees and restrictions and red tape. And the one response is probably more present than all others during this time is the one evoked by apathy. Why bother? It's the response that essentially says, it's whatever. I don't really care what happens to the temple. I'm not sure what God thinks of us right now. And if I'm honest, I'm not really thinking about God. Brothers and sisters, it's the same thing that happens to us during those times when, as God's people, we neglect what God calls us to. When obedience is at a standstill, and the only thing that seems worth any effort is looking out for ourselves. How do you respond in the moments of spiritual inactivity? When apathy towards obedience takes over, when it's easier, as Robert mentioned a few weeks ago, to just sort of skate around obedience rather than to pursue it directly. Well, that's the question that we want to answer today from Ezra chapter 5 and 6. How do God's people respond in seasons of inactivity? How do we respond in the discouraging moments when apathy and disappointment set in and seem inescapable? When obedience seems difficult to do. Ezra chapter 5, it begins with God's people's discouragement. And Ezra 6 ends with their joy and celebration. But, but how do they get there? How do they get there? And, and on top of this, where exactly is God in seasons like this? 16 years of silence, inactivity, nothing. Where is God in moments like this? I mean, over the last few chapters, it seems like this temple rebuild has been like a, a kind of chess game containing a lot of political strategy, a lot of process, and a lot of mundane and detailed religious activity. And now it looks like the rebuild is at a checkmate. Where's God in all of this? Well, for the sake of time, we'll go through these two chapters, and I'll just touch down on a few places, starting with Ezra chapter 4, verse 24, and chapter 5, verse 1. It says there, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So first off, how do we even know what these people were experiencing during this 16-year period between Ezra 4.24 and 5.1? You look at these two verses here, and they don't say anything at all about any kind of apathy or why they were inactive. Is this, is this just speculation? Well, I don't think so, because I, I, mainly because I know that my heart is wired in the same way as theirs, and so is yours. 
when obedience becomes difficult, when the obstacles of, of sin or suffering or discomfort, whenever those things stand in the way of pursuing whatever God desires, so often I do the same thing that Israel does here. Inconvenience, it triggers me into apathy. If obedience isn't an easy hurdle to jump, then sometimes I wanna just quit the race altogether. Frustration with repeated attempts at overcoming sin, enduring suffering, or obeying God's word, it eventually turns into apathy. Just taking the sidelines in my sanctification, waiting for something else outside of me to change before I actually obey. And in these seasons of discouragement, it becomes easy to just retreat and focus on my own convenience and comfort. Again, this isn't new. And we know that this is exactly what's happening because it's what the prophets Haggai and Zechariah observed every day for 16 years as God's people hid behind the inconvenience of Artaxerxes' decree and Rahum's intimidation. It's what God's prophets called these people out of. So maybe they were saying to themselves that it's against the law to keep rebuilding right now. We should really just wait. We should wait until another decree gets passed. It'll come off as threatening to to the other neighbors around us. We don't want to upset them. We don't want to rub any feathers. We don't rustle any feathers. Let's just wait. Let's just hold off. It's not the right time. Listen, if God wants to build the temple, let's let's just let him do it in his time. And so their strategy, retreat from obedience, make yourself comfortable, wait it out. So thinking about this, I can't help but remember the words of a man whose birthday we just celebrated over a month ago. A man who sat in a tiny jail cell 55 years ago fighting injustice in this country during a time of inactivity among many, including God's people. And this man, he wrote these words prophetically to a people who were content with retreating from obedience, comfortable in sinfulness, and content to wait for the right time. He said this, he said, frankly, I have yet to engage in a direct action campaign that was well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long delayed is justice denied. Martin Luther King's words in Birmingham jail echo Haggai's in Jerusalem. In Haggai chapter 1, the prophet says these words to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say the time has not yet come. Wait to rebuild the house of the Lord. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. This 16 years was the weight that was turning into the never. It was a delaying of obedience that would eventually become a denial of God's purposes. Is this where you are in obedience? This kind of spiritual inactivity and apathy, it keeps us from pursuing God's mission, and instead we often sinfully pursue our own. Our priorities and our comfort becomes elevated above God's mission and his purposes. It's exactly why these people were using supplies meant for the construction of the temple for construction on their own houses. 
working for their own ultimate ends, eating and drinking for their own ultimate satisfaction, and yet it was all insufficient. And so while the first chapter of Haggai's book addresses the inactivity of the people's hands concerning the temple, the first chapter of Zechariah's book addresses the spiritual inactivity of their hearts. Zechariah chapter 1, it declares to God's people in the midst of their discouragement, return to me and I'll return to you. Don't be like your forefathers who didn't listen when I warned them, who were rebellious. Zechariah is looking to motivate the people to repentance. He addresses the spiritual apathy and inactivity of the hearts of God's people and this whole collective attitude of it's whatever, why bother? See, even though they feel that God is distant from them because of past shame and future uncertainty, Zechariah, through, God through Zechariah, calls them to turning their hearts towards him in trust for provision, for comfort, and for protection. Overall, both of these prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, they call for the recommitment of the hearts and the hands of God's people to obedience to God and his mission. And look how this happens. It happens not primarily through the words of Haggai or Zechariah, but through the word of God. You want to know where God is in seasons like this? This is where God is in Ezra chapter 5. He is the God who is over them. He is watching them. He knows exactly where they are and exactly what their hearts are dealing with. In the thick of their inactivity, as they're stalling out in their obedience, God is providentially speaking to them ever aware of what the circumstances are, all the while convicting them of sin and calling them to repentance. And now we see that God's word comes to God's people. Listen, he will not leave us to ourselves in our discouragement or our disobedience. He won't sit by in our sanctification while we wait in resistance to obedience. Through God's word, God is providentially and powerfully proactive in pursuing us convicting us of sin and then calling us to turn to him in repentance. Brothers and sisters, is this what happens when you open your Bibles in the moments and the seasons of discouragement? God's word, it comes for us. It convicts us. It calls us in turning our hearts to repentance. One more thing about the message of these two prophets is when God is speaking to them, God isn't calling for the people's obedience because it will earn them anything with him. Haggai and Zechariah, their message isn't obedience for the sake of acceptance. Rather, it's, it's because of God's already established faithful love for his people, because he's for them, because he's already with them, that he pursues them in their disobedience and then moves them towards obedience. Listen, I encourage you to read both of these minor prophets this week. It won't take you much time because you'll see that God's spurring his people to obedience. It's purely from his grace. It's purely from his covenantal commitment to them. It's why God can speak through Haggai and say to the people, listen, work, make effort, work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. It's the same thing the Apostle Paul tells us concerning our obedience. To work. Make effort. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Listen, God calls us as his people to make efforts in obedience to him, to pursue his purposes, but we aren't ever alone in our striving to obey. God is for us, God is with us, and God's spirit is within us. Even when obedience is difficult, even in our resistance, even when obedience is greatly inconvenient to us, God himself is with us, for us, within us, graciously driving us to obey. And furthermore, when these mountains of opposition that make obedience to God so difficult. When these things stand before God's people, the Lord in Zechariah speaks to Zerubbabel again, saying, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the top stone, the finishing stone of the temple, foreseeing its future glory. He shall bring forth the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Listen, God's spirit working through God's word is always with God's people, driving us graciously to do God's will for his glory and for our joy. Everything that we need to pursue God's purposes obediently, it doesn't rest on our own ability. It doesn't rest within our own strength, but it's through God's spirit who is with us. And so the question for us is this, does the knowledge and experience of God's grace and his covenantal commitment to us as seen and revealed in his word, does this drive us to obedience? Does God's grace and what he has done for us motivate us and move us to pursue his purposes, to pursue his will? Does it produce the kind of response that we see in verse 2 that says, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Does God's spirit, through God's word, motivate us to do God's will? So moving on, after, a, after repentance and a renewed purpose, the unfinished temple project, it starts to pick back up again. Verses 3 through 5 tell us that right at the same time this was happening, more opposition comes around. A suspicious governor named Tatanai and his associates start interfering with the work, and they want to see a building permit. And this is just another test for God's people, a test of how genuine their resolve is to obey. It's a test of their perseverance. And so even though Tatanai's request for a building permit isn't uh, nearly as manipulative or as forceful as the previous one in chapter 4, it's as equally frustrating for God's people, and yet they weren't kept from working. And this points not so much to their resolve as it does to, to God's providential eye that was over them, that was always on his people, as you see in verse 5, working for us even in the midst of frustrating circumstances. And so look at verses 6 through 17. Tatanai sends a request to King Darius. He sends a letter, a letter that is not politically twisted in order to, to pursue an agenda. It just states the facts. And for all of the reasons that Israel could have used this as an opportunity to do some shaping of the narrative, kind of to their favor, you know, in order to keep this rebuild from not being shut down again, they just simply state the honest truth about themselves, while also at the same time displaying some diplomacy with the, the Persian authorities. 
And so you look at verse 11 in describing themselves as the servants of the God of heaven and earth. Israel, they were appealing to some theological terminology that the Persians would have been familiar with. The God of heavens and earth is what they used to describe their pagan deities. And in referring to Cyrus's specific decree to rebuild the temple, they, they sort of painted themselves as just doing whatever, whatever this former Persian governor, Persian king, told them to do. That's all. And it's possible that they could have appealed to political reasons alone, but the testimony of their facts, it doesn't stop there. See, God's people here were a confessional people. They collectively and unashamedly believed that what had transpired had everything to do with spiritual reasons. It had everything to do with their sin and God's glory. And so in typical Chris DeRocco fashion, these people tell their gospel story through the lenses of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Verse 11, once the people of a great king in Israel who built this temple, King Solomon, they now confess the sin of their forefathers in angering the God of heaven and their fall of being given over to the Babylonians. See, they've now become a people who are deeply aware of God's holiness and justice. They've become greatly aware of their guilt and their sin. And so this decree made by Cyrus, it isn't simply an independent, politically motivated action, but it's, it's a providential sign of God's redemption and his reversal of judgment upon them. It's a sign of God's presence being with them again. And now their efforts at finishing and rebuilding this temple were movements towards restoration. For a moment, let's just pause here for a second. If you haven't noticed yet, whether in this particular book or in this particular passage or all throughout the pages of the Bible, this is where God is in moments like this. And for God's people, nothing just happens. No coincidences. Nothing happens by chance. Yes, although we live in a frustratingly broken and sinful world that's always swinging its destructive, sinful, and debilitating fists, God's sovereign and seemingly invisible hand is always in full effect. It's always at 100. And everything from, uh, and everything from empowering his people through his word to, to overseeing the strategic movements of government officials. See, it's not bad fortune or karma that Artaxerxes makes this decree in chapter 4, halting the temple project progress 16 years earlier. It's not bad fortune or bad luck that Israel ends up plunging into a period of inactivity for 16 years. It's no coincidence that this letter gets sent in the early administration of a new Persian king, Darius. It's not by chance that the prophets spoke these words of encouragement and empowerment to God's people when they did. In the larger scope, it's no coincidence that Israel's story is written in this way. As tragic as it is, with their success and their captivity, their sins, their failures, their disobedience and all. And it's also no coincidence that your story is written in the way it is either. With your inconveniences, your frustrations, your sin, your failures, your suffering, your embarrassments, your brokenness. So maybe you've asked yourself, in looking at your life and in looking at some of the terrible things that maybe you've experienced, what does it all mean? I can't ever seem to make sense of why this happened, why that happened. It means this, as you consider your own story, 
Your life is not a set of isolated events that end up turning out some good or some bad results. No, as God's people, God is sovereignly at work, orchestrating, weaving, arranging, engineering throughout all circumstances, major and minor, good and bad, for his good and glorious purposes. See, he isn't caught off guard by any of this that's happening in Ezra chapter 5 or by anything in your story. He will always accomplish his purposes through whatever seasons, in whatever circumstances, by whatever means. Everything that you have experienced is in his will for his glory and for your joy. Nothing can thwart his purposes. Nothing can stand in his way for God's people. Nothing just happens. Nothing just happens. Chapter 6, verse 1. Growing up, I had chores like many of you, and I can remember sometimes trying to tell my parents that uh, I'm not going to do them. Uh, Whenever I said this, my dad would always respond with this, well, I'm going to tell you what you're not going to do, and that's walk by this trash can again. And you know, parents sometimes, they just don't stop. They go the extra mile, and he said, well, I'm going to tell you what you are going to do. You're going to take out the trash, and you're going to clean these dishes. Well, that's, that's King Darius there. Look, somebody give me a come on. Y'all know what that's like. Anybody, my parents weren't the only one that did that, right? <laughs> that's King Darius in chapter 6. He begins the search for Cyrus's decree, and it's eventually found. Darius then responds to Tatanai and his associates beyond the river in verse 7 by telling them what they're not going to do, and that's interfere with the temple building. He says, leave it alone. But then he tells them what they are going to do. Look at verse 8. They're going to expense the entire rebuilding of the temple from their own taxes without delay. See, it's these same people beyond the rivers who maligned the temple project 16 years earlier and eventually brought it to a halt. It's these same people who are now going to be the ones paying for its reestablishment. See, this move by Darius wasn't simply an additional blessing for God's people. It was an act of restoration. Verses 9 through 12, it says that the temple project was to be given to generously and protected violently. And Darius, at the end of the letter, he says this, May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make this decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Listen, the text doesn't indicate this, but for a moment, if you can just imagine that you are God's people and you're hearing this letter read aloud by some of the same people who oppressed you and stopped your project 16 years earlier, they're now, this letter is now telling them and you that they are going to be the ones who are expensing your project the rest of the way without delay. You need like a gif to communicate the expression on some of their faces. Maybe like a, well, you know. Listen, look at what's happening here. Verses 13 through 22, four years later, the temple is finished. God's people are encouraged through God's word that's been enabling them all the way to accomplish God's will. And now God's people celebrate with joy. Look at this, for the first time in 70 years, for the first time since they've been in captivity, God's people are offering sacrifices to God and serving him at the temple. 
what is this? From discouragement, 16 years of inactivity, to to four years later, joy, a finished temple. Once again, brothers and sisters, nothing just happens in this story. God is in charge here. God wins. Discouragement and halted construction is turned into joy and completion of the temple. How? How does this happen? Look at verse 14. It says that they finished by the decree of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes. How does this happen? Well, this doesn't mean that all of these individuals willfully and intentionally collaborated together and had some sort of meeting about when they were going to accomplish the temple rebuilding. No, it means this. It means that every other decree that came after God's was subject to God's sovereign purposes. See, even Artaxerxes' decree to halt the rebuild for 16 years, even in his sinful misunderstanding of God's mission and in his resistance to it, Artaxerxes actually fulfills the will of God. It's right on time. How? Look at verse 15. Because the house of God was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius. What's so significant about this date? It's exactly what God decreed long before any of this happened. It's been exactly 70 years since the destruction of the first temple, 70 years since Israel was placed under God's wrath into Babylonian captivity as foretold by the prophet Jeremiah, and then 70 years since the Lord, through the same prophet Jeremiah, promised to restore his people in Jerusalem. In Jeremiah chapter 29, your favorite bookstore's favorite verse For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, saith the Lord. Plans that I'm just going to trail off. Y'all know the rest. (laughs) Listen, God's decree stands. God wins. You want to know where God's been in this story? Do you want to know where God is? He's at work. He's at work for his glory and for the joy of his people through every kind of season and circumstance, whether progress, setback, inactivity, obstacles, and even sin. His purposes always win. Listen, brothers and sisters, this isn't the the cliche, everything happens for a reason. This isn't the shallow, it'll all turn out fine in the end. No, this is biblical sovereignty and providence. And because God always wins, so do his people even when winning feels like losing. Listen, I cannot guarantee you that your life will not be hard or that it'll even get better soon or that you won't face discouragement or long seasons of wondering where in the world is God in my life. But listen, God's word isn't promising us an easy life for God's people, but it promises us a purposeful life. One where God always wins and where our lives at all times are rooted in the all-powerful, all-loving purposes of this gracious God. Where our lives are in his hands and nothing can thwart his purposes. Nothing can stop what he will achieve for his glory and our joy. Nothing just happens for God's people. Look at verse 19. In verse 19, the people celebrate the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
after the temple's completion, sacrifices they're being made to atone for their national guilt. Although during this first uh, traveling back to Jerusalem that two tribes of Israel came back, they were making atonement sacrifices for people who hadn't even begun to experience this reality yet. There's something in there. Jewish exiles and their converted Gentile neighbors, they, they celebrate the finished temple and the feast of unleavened bread together. Jews and Gentiles celebrating the Passover, marking a period of newness for the people of God. Worship of Yahweh as according to the Mosaic order in the first five books of the Bible, it's been restored. The people who were once marked by apathy and disobedience, they've now become people who are marked by joy. Why? Why are they joyful? Verse 22, because the Lord made them joyful and it turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them. Listen, the foundation of our joy, the foundation of our eternal joy is in the sovereignty of this God who orchestrates all things and is always with and for his people. Because God is for us, because he is committed to us faithfully in his power and in his providence, God's people can rest. God's people can rejoice confidently in our sovereign God who always wins. We can have assurance. We can have confidence that this unseen player in every moment of our lives is always working for his glory and our eternal good. Listen, sovereignty is on our side. Sovereignty is on our side. Listen, what else do we learn from this? What else do we take away from the events in Ezra chapter 5 and 6? Well, because God is absolutely in control of everything and because the glorious narrative of his sovereignty is found all throughout the pages of God's word, we know that, we know that our obedience has glorious consequences. Our obedience has glorious consequences. Even when obeying God inconveniences us, even inconveniences us greatly in the present, our obedience always leads to our joy. It always leads to God's will being accomplished in our lives, which, which makes disobedience all the more futile. It makes its consequences all the more unnecessary. If God's purposes always win, if God's purposes are always established, then why resist his will? Why hesitate in obedience? Instead, we can go joyfully in obeying God because our joy is, is at stake. Our joy will be achieved. Furthermore, obedience has glorious consequences, and the, the consequences of our obedience are, are always greater than what we can imagine. See, in the normal, ordinary, and mundane faithfulness of God's people in Ezra chapter 5, and in the normal, ordinary, mundane faithfulness that in your life, God's purposes extend far beyond just what we can see in front of us. See, our ordinary obedience has great present and eternal implications, not only for ourselves, but our spouses, our families, our relationships, and for God's eternal purposes. The messages of Haggai and Zechariah, once again, they communicated this as they lifted the discouraged heads of God's people to see that the simple obedience of what they were doing, the brick by brick, the mortar, the, the moving of blocks, the, the building of walls, the moving of furniture. 
The simple obedience that was in front of them would lead to the future glory of God's temple. It would lead to the day when God would come again and establish righteousness and justice and his glory and his grace forever. Prophets lifted the heads of God's people to see that there were greater implications at stake, greater consequences for their ordinary and mundane faithfulness and obedience. But if there was anyone who really understood this, from this passage, it was a person to whom both of these prophets mention. A person who would have been overly familiar with this truth about obedience and its greater glorious consequences. Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. Now up to this point in Ezra, Zerubbabel's become familiar with the everyday struggle of obeying God through all kinds of inconveniences and circumstances. He's been in Jerusalem from the beginning of Cyrus's decree. His hands, they built, they participated in building the altar of God, and then his hands laid the foundation of the temple. Zerubbabel, he was the one approached by the Samaritans when they wanted to assist in the rebuild. He was the one who told them no, and consequently was probably one of the first people forcibly removed from working on the temple when Artaxerxes issued the decree to stop the construction of the temple. Zerubbabel was one of the ones who experienced this 16-year period of inactivity. Zerubbabel was one of the ones who maybe even used some of the, the disobedient, disobediently used some of the temple's, uh, temple's furniture for his own house. It was most likely his words that led the people in corporate confession to the letter, in the letter to Darius. And because of his trust and obedience to God and his words, Zerubbabel, he experienced the joy of the Lord with God's people at the temple's completion. But Zerubbabel's obedience still had greater consequences. See, in the closing words of Haggai, the Lord tells Zerubbabel that when he shakes the heavens and the earth and overthrows the kingdoms of this world, he'll choose Zerubbabel to be his servant. He'll make him like a signet ring. And in Zechariah, the Lord refers to Zerubbabel as the branch, the branch who will branch out to build the temple and who will rule on his throne. I mean, you talk about consequences for obedience, all this for a governor of Judah, all this for a guy who's not even named after the book. All this for a man who plays such a seemingly ordinary role in this narrative. Look, this is in the last place that we'll see Zerubbabel's name, and it's not the last time that we'll see the consequences of Zerubbabel's obedience in rebuilding the temple. See, Haggai and Zechariah, they refer to him as a signet ring and as a branch, but Matthew's gospel, it actually calls Zerubbabel something else. It refers to him as a father. You see, Zerubbabel's temple points to something greater, and Zerubbabel himself points to someone greater. Zerubbabel's name is found in the lineage of God's promised Messiah. God's promised Messiah who will eventually stand in this same temple built by his ancestor during another Passover, and when he's confronted by opposition... He'll declare to them, destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it in three days. And this is why the glory of this second temple is greater than the first. This is why Haggai tells him that the glory of the latter will be greater than, than Solomon's temple, the glory of the former. Zerubbabel's rebuilding of the second temple, it will lead to the establishment of the true temple. The son of David, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of God, Jesus Christ. See, in his body, which would be destroyed during Passover as the sacrifice for the sin of God's people, Jesus dies on the cross for our sin. He dies for our disobedience and our rejection of God's commands. But three days later, 
Three days later, Jesus' body was powerfully resurrected, fulfilling within himself the purpose of the temple, replacing it. See, Jesus is now the person, the place through which everyone meets and has fellowship with God. He's the one through whom we have access to God. He's the one through whom sin is forgiven. He's the one who made this ultimate atonement sacrifice for our sin. He's the one to whom our worship is aimed. Jesus said this of himself later in John's gospel, that no man comes to the Father except through me. And he also says that, listen, one greater than the temple is here. And it's this Jesus. He is the greater temple. And in his life of perfect obedience, always fulfilling God's commands, he lives in the place of disobedient people like us. See, when our hands were inactive to God's purposes, his hands fulfilled God's commands and they were pierced for our transgressions. When our hearts were turned away from God and turned towards sin and trusting in ourselves, rejecting and neglecting his word, Christ's heart turns towards us, compelling us to return to God. It's because of Jesus' death and his resurrection for sinners that all who trust in him are forgiven of sin and that as the book of Ezekiel says, we are given a new heart and a new spirit that causes us to walk in God's ways. It's through Jesus that God comes alongside of us, along with us, and lives in us by the power of his spirit to obey God's purposes, to do God's will. It's through Jesus that we have joy and obedience, that his commandments are not burdensome. It's through Jesus. It's through Jesus that God himself has placed himself sovereignly on our side and works providentially for us, coming alongside with us, encouraging us and enabling us to obey, but also working all things together in our lives. Seasons of discouragement, disappointment, suffering, anxiety, fear, embarrassing, embarrassing things because of his power and providence through Christ. God is for us and with us, working together everything in our lives for the good of conforming us into the image of Jesus, of glorifying us, of giving us joy forever with him. Listen today, will will you hear God's word? Will you trust him? you turn from the moments of the the discouraging moments when when obedience seems hard, when disobedience seems better? Will you turn from those moments and turn and trust him? Trust him for your joy. Listen, we'll transition to the the portion of the service uh, where we celebrate the and reflect on the life and the death of Jesus, his resurrection, where we're refreshed and reminded of what he accomplished for us, where his body, his temple was torn down and rebuilt in three days so that you and I could have access to God. See, what we could never accomplish on our own, what we could never rebuild or establish in in forging our relationship to God, Christ has accomplished for us in three hours on a cross. In three days being resurrected. Because of him, we can have joy. We can be reminded 
that his body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for our sin. And we can be refreshed with joy in the grace of God and knowing that he accepts us. He is for us. He is with us. I want you to take some time to, to just reflect. Repent of any of the disobedience maybe that's been in your heart from this week, this month, this life. Turn to God and trust him. And if, if your trust is in God, if your trust is in the perfect sacrifice of Christ, come forward and receive communion. But if you're here today and maybe you say that I'm not sure where my hope is. I'm not sure what to think about this sovereign God and what to think about my own life and its events. Listen, if I could encourage you, I would tell you that if you are here today, it's not by accident. It's not by chance. It's because the sovereign God has brought you here to hear his word so that you can trust in him so that you can turn from disobedience, so that you can turn from discouragement, and you can turn to him for joy, for life, for grace, for forgiveness. If your trust is not in this God today, through what he has done through his son Jesus, just remain at your seat during this time. Talk to him. He's brought you here so you can talk to him. Talk to someone else. Talk to maybe one of the people that you see coming up who are receiving and being reminded of this grace that we've received. So let's take a moment to reflect and we'll, we'll come forward and receive communion. You've been listening to a message by Rayshawn Graves given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.